Well, have a seat, everyone. Just for a moment, I'm going to stand you up here in just a second to, uh, to read a scripture. But uh, we come to just a standalone uh, message this week. And um, I've thought about this message for months and months uh, in parts and so forth. And it's a different kind. Today is I'm taking you to school and the, the doctor is in. There you go. I got my, for you guys on the podcast, I'm wearing this very nerdy Leonardo da Vinci ripoff looking hat. Um, so uh, we are going to study interpreting the Bible. And you, uh, I gave you even a um, cheat sheet. I think Scott Patton said that they didn't all get handed out or something like that. So you guys are standing there. Just raise your hand like if you want a cheat sheet and a little golf pencil because you want to be able to fill one out. So you guys didn't get one here in the middle. So um, you're going to want this. Sorry, I don't have a hat for everybody, um, but um, that's cool. So we're bringing up the white marker board, and we're going to get to work. Keep your hands up until, like, somebody actually pays attention to you. That's really nice, you guys. Very cool. They're working on it. Yeah, so this will help you kind of follow along and track, and I'm going to hit you with this stuff. I don't think today is difficult. I don't think it's uh, – but it might be a bit of a chin scratcher. I want to have you walking out of here – thinking, right? So that's what we're going to do. So um, with that, if everyone's got their piece of paper here on this deal, stand up, everyone, one more time. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now, Let's do this all together. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Amen. Have a seat. So, and I'll take the hat off because that's really distracting. I'll hang it right here just so you know that you're still in school. So, Like I said, every once in a while, I want to put on the professor's hat and take us to school on these sort of dig deep mornings. Um, Because because I feel compelled um, that we become messed up, confused about how Scripture gets interpreted, okay? And I need to do some some teaching here just to get this straightened out. And mostly what we're going to do is do a history then of how the Bible has been interpreted really for the last 2,000 years. And that's where we're going to attack this thing. Because what I find around Lakeland, everyone, and I'm really thinking a lot about students, by the way, this morning. So if you're a high schooler or or middle schooler, then uh, hopefully you'll be tracking with this sort of deal. What I hear around here far too often is something like either I don't understand the Bible and we find even people around Lakeland, like, they're not really sure that Jesus was actually a historical figure and things like this, which is, you know, like, wow. Or I hear another voice that says, I just read the Bible literally. I just read it for myself, literally. Or someone says, I was reading the Bible and God told me to believe or do such and such X, Y, Z. Marry this person, person, divorce this person, vote for this candidate. The Bible told me to say this on social media, um, change churches, buy the worship director a Tesla. You know, whatever it is. <laughs> Things like that. 
So uh, on the other hand, when the Bible is read and interpreted as a community, as a church community, when the Bible is read and interpreted as a community, then the Bible stands a far greater chance of positively affecting each of our lives, drawing us closer to God, and changing the world around us. So here's my premise this morning. Private, personal reading of Scripture is not how Scripture was intended to be read. I'll say it again. Private, personal reading of Scripture is not how Scripture was intended to be read, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. The Bible was intended to be read in community. That's the way it was written, and that's the way it was supposed to be interpreted and used. Now, it's okay, and I hope some of you do this, that you will put your elbow in your hand and scratch your chin a lot this morning. It's totally fine. I hope you get a few of those out of you. You can get your good Presbyterian chin scratch going. Mm. And the Presbyterian grunt comes in handy too. Mm. Mm. That'll tell you that we're not Pentecostal. All right. So uh, here's where we're going to start. A brief history of how the Christian church interpreted Scripture. After Jesus had risen from the dead, okay? After Jesus rose from the dead, um, what you had then was a lot of people who had witnessed Jesus rising from the dead. And for the remainder of that generation, that generation of witnesses, you had all sorts of people going around saying, like, I saw it. I know what happened. So this period was about 33 A.D. It's approximately when Jesus rose from the dead. Scholars don't know if it was 28, 30, or 33 A.D., somewhere around there. And to about 100 A.D., right, you have the period of the first church, the witnesses. I call us the first church, not the early church, because the early church could include people who were not witnesses. And what you have then is people interpreted the Bible as witnesses. Okay? That's what they did. They, they in some respects, what really happened is, is that they looked backwards, so here, here's a scripture on it. Now, I put it on your sheet. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 42, but it goes all the way to 47. I just put 42 on the sheet, but it goes all the way down to 47, which I think is on the screen. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. By the way, just stop right there. They devoted themselves to where, where are they learning? To the apostles' teaching. What are they doing? They're looking at the Old Testament, the Torah, the prophets, the writings, They're also recounting what Jesus said, interpreting what the prophets said. And then also it says the prayers, which is an interesting way of putting it. It's not and to prayer, it's the prayers as though the prayers are written, that they're joined together in prayers. In other words, liturgical prayers, which today is so unpopular among evangelicals, but yet the prayers were probably done in a set pattern back then, all right, just the way we sing songs. All came upon everyone, verse 43, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute to the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Acts chapter 2. 
The first church interpreted the Bible as witnesses. So they were living the story. Yet they did not have a pure objective opinion or it wasn't a videotape or anything like that. They had to talk about it. They had to talk about what did Jesus say? What happened? And they were sort of unpacking what was going on with the life and the teaching of Jesus as well as the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. They're trying to put it all together. That's what's going on for those first few decades. They all reflected back what they heard and beheld and saw with their own hands in the life of Jesus, and they read it back onto their own life. Very intriguing and very unique as a period of interpretation because you had firsthand witnesses. Now, if we move on, if we move on then from 100 AD, and these are big, vast time frames, you know, we're just... um, Picking, picking them a little bit. From about 100 to 700 A.D., very interesting period. The Bible now, you're, the, all the witnesses have died off, right? They've gone to uh, rest eternal and by, by the Lord. And um, they begin to um, put their hand in their elbow and scratch their chin and say, now, was Jesus... God and 100% man? And how's that work? So they had two things on interpreting the Bible. The first was deep theological issues. Deep theological issues had to get decided. Theological issues. Okay? That was the first thing that was being worked on. In this time period, what's really interesting and kind of baffling to us modern type people, your common person probably was illiterate. Literacy was very low, probably less than 10% of the population. What's interesting is, is during this period when the Bible, the canon of the Bible, like what's going to go in the Bible and so forth, people knew their Bible like crazy. It was liturgized. In other words, it was sung in like a chant and so forth. You had monks during this period who had the entire Bible memorized. I'm not saying a portion of it. I'm not saying the Psalms. I'm saying every jot and tittle and Greek in the whole thing. Now, think about it, though. They didn't have movies. They didn't have Shakespeare. This was their movies in Shakespeare, right? Because you guys have things memorized, too, because you're conditioned by culture. Everyone in here, at least my age, knows, and we could probably go through the entire movie of Dumb and Dumber. We could just get that done. And, you know, just bouncing off each other, we could riff off each other and get that done. In John Adams' time, at the time of the Founding Fathers, they could all quote uh, Cicero and Shakespeare. John Adams' family, they all sat around the dinner table just doing entire Shakespeare plays. Smart family, by the way, too. But in their time, it was the Bible. Back in this time, they were, people knew the deep theological issues. Your common person in the marketplace could debate theological issues about what's the essence of Jesus. Is he God or man? Songs were written, liturgies, people divided over the stuff. People knew their stuff. The other thing that went on as they were trying to decide what do we all actually believe and how is it all put together, the other thing um, was piety. What's Piety. Piety is rigorous moral living, upright living. 
righteousness. Piety was what people were chasing down then. This means when they interpreted scripture during this period, if it said it, they did it. When it said, sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, when they read that out of Matthew, they did it. As a matter of fact, I love the favorite story, one of my favorite stories of one of the monks uh, who actually had a Bible. He had scriptures in several you know, volumes, um, and they're extremely valuable, right? And he read in the scripture, it said, and in the group as they gathered, it said, sell all your possessions to give it to the poor. So he sold the actual scriptures that told him to sell all his possessions. He sold that and gave the money to the poor. Like, how's that for putting your money where your mouth is, so to speak? I mean, that's some serious devotion going on. These guys and gals would make us look like just outright, you know, uh, secularist, you know, just heathen people. These guys were very devout during this period. And the Bible was not so much interpreted as I would have called it, uh, or as I've called it, as it was performed. The scripture was performed. It was just done. It was a speech act and a performance act, and that's kind of some technical language there. But they were speech acts and um, performance language. Okay? Now, we move on another big chunk. Time presses on here to about 700 to 1400. And then during this period, very interesting, in the Middle Ages, the Byzantine version of the Roman Empire is going on in Constantinople. This is the time of knights and kings and little empires across Europe. They're not really nation states. They're sort of city states. You know, Siena is going on and Bavaria is going on and all of these sort of things. This is all of our fun movies are all during this period with lots of swords and knights and beheadings and this sort of thing. Um, and what you have going on during this time is that people didn't know the Bible. The, the, they didn't know what the desert looked like in the Bible lands. They didn't know what Egypt looked like. They didn't know what a lion was. They didn't know anything. So when the Bible talked about stuff, they're like, I don't know what it is. They just imagined their own stuff, right? They didn't know what an actual lion looked at. So 700 to 1400, the Bible then was interpreted as allegory. I think this is the fill in the blank allegory. There you go. That's from your English lit class, right? Allegory. Allegory, I'll just, I'll tell you what it is. Allegory is not history. It doesn't care about history. It actually is something that says it's larger. It's cosmic. When you read something allegorically, it, it means the story is not like in the Bible. If you read the, if you're allegorical and you read the Bible about Jesus turning water into wine or feeding the 5,000 with two fishes and five loaves, it didn't, you don't ask, well, how does water get turned into wine? Is there like some, did Jesus know some like chemical formula or something like that? There's nothing scientific about it. Instead, they say it doesn't mean water into wine. It means about the Holy Spirit becoming present in all things. They move it to a mystical, magical, it means something different. It was a way of interpreting the cosmos and the universe around them. That's what allegorical means. It means to tell us something about the unseen world around us, myth and magic and the stars and the heavens. And that's why when you and I go down to the Nelson Atkins Museum, right, and you look at the art and, you're, and it's from like 50 or about 1300 or 1200 or even 900 and you're like, what? 
I don't get it. There's a bunch of people standing out in the woods, and there's like a fawn and a centaur. Wait, is that a cherubim there? And you know, you know what I mean? And then there's Adam and Eve stuck over there, and then there's a demon over here, and then Satan's got a pitchfork and a forked tail and all this stuff. You're like, what's going on? Like, well, and you know, we read it with our modern mind, and we say like, well, that's not actual real. Like, well, of course not. They knew that. It was talking about larger realities. It's talking about a Garden of Eden. It's talking about Adam and Eve, you know? And I, here's a pet peeve. This is way off the script. It bugs the tar out of me when I go to museums and they have that plaque on there. And what's the plaque say? It, you know, Brandon's sitting there laughing at me because I've been down there with the Nelson with him. I've told this sort of thing. He's like, okay, here we go. And then it says, tempura on canvas with wash, you know, and, and this stuff in this period. And you're kind of like, they didn't tell me anything about this. Can we just go to the snack bar and get over this thing, right? Nobody wants to hang out in a museum. We don't get it. We don't, we don't have a magical, enchanted world around us. And even the people designing the plaques don't even get it. They're like, well, we're just going to tell them like what materials they used and what date it was and what period this was during the artist, you know, career. Let's go get some hummus or whatever they got over there and call it good. And so we don't understand it because we don't live from this period. But for those people, this interpreted the universe. Because think about what's going on. People needed to understand history, but they didn't really have history. Everyone was in isolation around Europe. So instead, they came up with metaphors and allegories to understand what was going on. Why is there evil in the world? Well, we have a story. There's demons and there's Satan. And is there going to be justice someday? Yes. Look, Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. Don't eat that apple, Eve. No, don't give it to Adam. It was like a little movie in a still shot. And it can tell you why you were on the planet. It helped you make sense of things. The Bible interpreted the world beyond. Heaven, hell, paradise, exotic lands like Palestine and Babylonia. All magical places. But, but, then... Around 1500, really around 1400, 1450, I'm just going to put out one date, 1517, the authorized official date of the Protestant Reformation. Now, the Protestant Reformation started by Martin Luther, Martin Luther that Augustinian monk, he's a former, he gives up being a monk, the, the one um, who was a Catholic priest, renounced that, the one who was a doctor of the church, preeminent theologian and scholar, begins to say that everyone can read the Bible by themselves. Sola Scriptura was the Latin only Scripture is our authority. They renounced, the Protestant Reformation renounced, renounced hierarchy, renounced also abuses that were going on within the church in certain parts of it. And it began to, to give rise to the primacy of the individual. Keep in mind, everything was changing in Europe this time. Primarily, you know, the Gutenberg movable type press, right? 
Because now you could print things in little pamphlets and give them out to people. Your common person, your common peasant could begin to learn to read and understand, understand things for themselves. The very first thing printed on the Gutenberg Press was what? The Bible. People could get the Bible. It was being translated into German, into Dutch, into French, and into English. Everybody had the Bible. People could learn to ring, read. And the Bible was sitting on, on people's kitchen table during this time. For the next several hundred years, the Bible moved out of the church. In the old days, you know, the Bible, if they had one, it was only usually just parts of it. It was literally chained to the wall in the sanctuary. If you wanted to study it, you had to go sit there and read it. Otherwise, you only heard the Bible in church. That's all that ever really happened. So things began to change. The last time, check it out. So the year's around 1450 when the first translations and people are being burned at the stake for such things. The last time before 1500 that the Bible had been translated was by Jerome in 382 AD. He translated it from the Hebrew and the Greek into Latin and it became the Latin Vulgate. 382 to 1450, nobody had translated the Bible. But with the Gutenberg Press and the primacy and the rising up of the individual, suddenly everyone had the Bible. People could vote. People began to have individual freedom. Hierarchy was out. No authority. All of us are the same. These are what built America. Each and every one of us is a citizen, each entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, each having their own rights according to a constitution. All of, the, all of that got imposed upon the Bible and the church. As a matter of fact, the Reformation's a part of it. It helped cause it. It might even be the more primary cause. All of this then goes on from the Protestant Reformation and you have the you know, proliferation of denominations because now everyone could debate about things theologically. Then one German theologian in 1840, David Strauss, German theologian, brilliant man, by the way, he did this. Nobody had done this at this point. He took the Bible. He took the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he applied modern critical scholarship to the Gospels. The same tools that you would use to, say, study cuneiform from the Egyptians or the Magna Carta or any other ancient document. He said, well, what happens if we just take those same critical tools that we use for doing all of our archaeology work and we just apply it to the Bible? And so that's what he did. And a whole bunch of other scholars began to do that too. And you know what they concluded over the next few decades? They said, we don't really know the Jesus of history. We don't know the historical figure of Jesus because it looks like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all sort of made up this story about Jesus. It's not a historical archaeological book. It's not a science book. It's a tale that these guys made up. We don't know the real Jesus. We don't have a historical Jesus. And by 1900, another famous German theologian, Rudolf Bultmann, Rudolf Boltmann said this. 
There is no Jesus of history. There's only the Christ of faith. No historical Jesus, only the Christ of faith. You see what he did there? You hear it? No historical figure of Jesus that we can ascertain. But you can have faith about this person named Jesus, uh, Christ. Boltmann's famous for saying, like, who can believe in a resurrection in the day, in the day of, a mo- of turning on an electric light bulb? I wonder what he'd say these days. Moving on then, what you have going on, famously so, is the Scopes trial, 1925. I won't write it down, but it follows the same trajectory. The Scopes trial, 1925, you guys know this? Remember this from history class? In the Scopes trial, all of this was brought to a head, pitting the Bible's creation story against the theory of evolution because a teacher was brought up on charges of teaching evolution, which was against the law, state law in Tennessee. One back east reporter wrote in his article, these creationists, these Bible believers are a bunch of country bumpkins. That was his exact word. They're illiterate and they're stupid and they don't know what they're talking about. They're not scientific and they're not modern. Boom. 1925 and onwards, you have uh, Bible interpretation split into two, two thoughts, okay? You have two thoughts then at this point. And it looks like this. I'll go ahead and just write that on here. 1925. I don't think it's on your sheet. Is it? Oh, yeah, you guys are right. So what you have then, and uh, at this point, you have, in a sense, you have a fundamentalist view. Fundamentalism comes out, or on the kind of uh, Christ of faith, you have this sort of, um, you have this sort of, well, I'm just going to call it self-help interpretation. This fires up those who, it's funny that, so think about this for a moment, okay? Think about this for a moment. Both of them are treating it as a science book. This one, the fundamentalists who take a literalist view, like the Scopes trial, they think that when it says six-day literal creation, it's literally a six-day, 24-hour each literal creation. They think the Bible is a science book, and they're going to take it quite literally, and they become fundamentalists and back east newspapermen call them a bunch of fools. So they entrench and get all fired up, hellfire and brimstone, about making sure that it's all literal. The other side thinks it's a science book and says, that's really bad science. What are we going to get out of this book? Well, not much science. Because they still thought of it as a science book. You tracking with me? It just wasn't good science. And these guys, these guys are still around. When I'm driving down the highway through Missouri and you see a billboard and it says John 3.16, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which is actually John 10. uh, But it doesn't matter. They conflate the whole thing. And then it says, Jesus is, capital letters, the truth. You, the billboard reader, are supposed to think like, that's right. We all knew that, right? 
and all your secular friends are driving by saying like, what? What's a 316? Is that some like measurement or something? You know what I mean? Because these guys are saying, you know, we've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. How about you? And these guys just caved in and said like, well, there's not any history there and it's not really true and Jesus didn't raise from the dead. What do we get out of this thing? Uh, just sort of a self-help guide on how to do good living. 1900, the famous Dr. Albert Schweitzer, okay? You know Dr. Albert Schweitzer? Schweitzer is one of these incredible human beings. He had three doctorates by the time he was 26. One in organ, like playing the organ. One medical and the other one theological. He was a, a guy, they said, that had that weird sort of, I don't know if you call it a medical condition or what. He only slept one hour a night. He writes a book called The, historical, uh, the Quest for the Historical Jesus and concludes that Jesus really did die and his bones can be found somewhere here on the earth. He never rose from the dead. He says, but since we have the Christ of faith, all, what we all need to do is be the best human beings we could all possibly be. So you know what Schweitzer does? Talk about being like piety. He moves to deepest, darkest Africa in 1908 and serves indigenous people medically for the rest of his life. Imitating Jesus, helping people. I'm like, man, where's your firepower if you don't believe in the resurrection? But good dude. Those were the two responses. Fundamentalism or sort of a, a modern or liberal understanding of self-help. Now it's not over. It ain't over till it's over. 1980s. 1980s. <clears throat> Enter something that's a buzzword today. Actually, it's kind of way, way over being a buzzword. Enter post-modernity. You just went from undergrad to master's level in the course this morning. In the 1980s, postmodernity comes in, and postmodernism begins to critique modernism. Strauss and Boltmann and all of this division, they begin to say in postmodernity, they begin to say, like, you know what? Your guys' assumptions are all wrong. You keep thinking that the Bible is supposed to be literally historically true. You keep thinking of it as a science book. It was never written like that. There is something historical, postmodernity says, in the Bible. But it has spin. Now, all you postmoderns, do you know what spin is? Okay, if you don't, I got a little phrase for you. Fox News or CNN. Does everyone understand spin? There's somebody out there going like, I just think it's the unadulterated objective truth. William Randolph Hearst, around 1900, think of the period when this is going on. William Randolph Hearst said, he changed all his newspapers and said, we are just going to report the objective truth. The myth is that there's objectivity out there. That's what postmodernity says. Everything is subjective. Everything is spin. Everything's interpreted. This is always coming from somebody. There's no such thing as the absolute, unadulterated, objective thing. 
here's the way it works out. So I put these four boxes on there for you. So here's the first box. The first box is the time-space event, the thing that happened, right? Jesus raising from the dead, okay? Time-space event. The thing that happened, right? It's the original deal. It's the thing that happened in time and space, right? What happens then? Does, Does anybody know that? You're like, well, sure. Like, no, no, they don't. They're witnesses of this, of Jesus' resurrection. So the next box in this whole thing are the witnesses of the event. You're seeing things down the line here of a witness of the original event. Then the next thing is, is you have the hearer Of the witness. That's you and me. We read the Bible, we interpret the Bible, and we say, like, huh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talking about the resurrection of Jesus and Paul in there too. The original event, you don't know what it is. But you have an account, a gospel, of that original event, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John's redacted, edited, filtered, Spend, is that a word? Spun, story of the resurrection. What postmodernity scholars say is like, there is something historical, but it's trying to tell a story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are trying to tell a story in a particular way. It doesn't mean it's fiction. It doesn't mean it's made up. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Even secular scholars who are not Christians say that we can conclude from the Gospels that the disciples believed that Jesus, that the tomb was empty and that he rose from the dead. You and I hear this story and it adds another filter. Because here we are sitting here in the 21st century and we read it and just like these guys back in the allegories where they didn't know what a desert or a lion was or what a pyramid was or anything like that back in this period, right? We don't know what happened back in the Bible times. We can read archaeology and we can study and so forth, but we don't know we weren't there. These guys do, but now it's getting, we're, our hearing comes filtered through them. And so then the last thing in this sort of postmodern study is our own story of what happened, our own interpretation. You tracking with me? This is the way everything is. For those of you who are old enough or you guys in high school or whatever who heard about the Rodney King trial, during the Rodney King trial, there was this thing called television back in the old days, and it was this deep box, and it kind of glowed. Anyway, on television, they showed the Rodney King beating by Los Angeles police officers over and over and over. People began to question whether or not it was actually real. I don't think they're hitting him that hard. You remember this kind of stuff, old timers? That's what happened. 
question, we begin to question the actual events themselves, and you begin to realize there's spin to everything. So if you're a good postmodern, you can sit around and get your good postmodern smirk on now and kind of say, like, yeah, everything's got spin, dude. <laughs> or if you're from the 80s like me, it'd be word. So see, here's what it's like. Oh, wait, by the way, I got a dad joke for you. Which I found out first service, it wasn't really a dad joke. So do I have this picture, Heather? Dad joke picture? Okay, so here's Jesus. He's got one finger up in the air, right? He got one finger up in the air. And scholars have wondered, what is he saying? And, and here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, people, I'm only going to say this one time. I don't want like four versions of this out there or anything. Okay, you guys are polite. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for you guys. Think. Okay, so, okay, end of the dad joke. Postmodernity works like this. If I say blue, think of something blue. Oh, I already kind of put the spin to it because I said something. What are you thinking of? You thinking of a paint swatch from Shereen Williams about painting your bedroom blue? Are you thinking of the sky? Are you thinking of a robin's egg? Are you thinking of a 1956 Buick Skylark? I was thinking of a KU football helmet. What's true? We're all thinking blue. That much is historically true. When we begin to think about all of these, we begin to get a story. And when I'm thinking about a KU football helmet, a freaking miracle happened yesterday because they actually won. So there's a whole story to this thing. See what I mean? And that story, because if we were thinking blue, maybe we think of whatever color that some person was wearing back in the Jesus story, you know? Maybe something on Herod. But a narrative happens, and it suddenly becomes our own, and we interpret it for ourselves. That's the way post-modernity works. It always creates a story. So scholars today believe that the Gospels are historical stories, but they're told in a certain way. The Bible is factual, but like everything in life, the facts have been arranged to tell you a certain way things happened. It doesn't mean it's false. This has rescued us from Strauss and this myth of objectivity. Okay? So you and I, spin everything there is around us. And if you're really cynical, you end up like Pontius Pilate during the trial of Jesus saying, what is truth? The tragedy would be is if you didn't think anything was true and you wash your hands of it. So this brings us to our point this morning. The Bible must be read in community if it's going to be interpreted correctly. The Bible was never written for private devotion. It can be used for private devotion but it was never meant to be done that way. It was always meant to be read in community. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, it was always read in community. That is in the church. Now, I know this is going to fire your rockets when I say the Bible was never meant to be read devotionally. And you're like, well, am I going to read it devotionally? Is that okay? Is that permissible around here? Like, yeah, you're going to do it anyway. It doesn't matter what I say, right? Because you're all Americans. You get to do whatever you feel like. But the Bible was never written to be just for private Use. You are not a church all by yourself. The Supreme Court says otherwise, by the way. 
Because a man brought suit because he got fired for because he wasn't going to work on Sunday. And he claimed that he was his own church. He didn't go to any church. He didn't look very religious, but he said he was his own church. And the Supreme Court said he's his own church. Whoa. All right. Got that settled. Stanley Hauervoss, you do not know his name. It's not on the midterm. But Stanley Hauervoss is famous for making this famous statement. See if this doesn't get you going. I think I put it on the uh, piece of paper there at the bottom. No task is more important than for the church to take the Bible out of the hands of individual Christians in North America. How's that for a throwdown statement? He goes on to say this, and I'm quoting. North American Christians are trained to believe that they are capable of reading the Bible without spiritual and moral transformation. We have become trained because everyone's a church and everyone can read the Bible. The downside of the whole thing is that we don't take it seriously. When it says sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, we say like, huh, I wonder what that means in the Greek. I don't know. I'll go look it up in my personal Greek dictionary or get on Wikipedia. We just took the teeth out of the scriptures by privatizing it. In the early years uh, of Lakeland, when I started the place, I had this six-week course called Jumpstart Your Spiritual Journey. And somewhere around the middle of the thing, I had this question that I would ask them, and I wasn't really convinced of the answer. And I would ask everybody, I'd say like, do you think everyone could be a Christian all by themselves without ever going to church? And of course, everybody's like, yeah, man, I'm a Christian all by myself. You know, I wasn't going to church a few weeks ago. I am now. And I would sit there and do this. i go, I don't know. I was beginning to question at that time, what's the purpose of the church? Why are we all gathered together? I hope it's not just for some sort of self-help living. I hope it's just not so we can all chant the same anthem and, you know, hate somebody. I hope it's so it changes our lives. But you know what I found over the years? talking about some sort of postmodern, my own story. I've read in the Bible about giving and charity and generosity, but I can tell you that in our household, what changed me about generosity and charity and giving is hanging out with you guys and hearing how you live, and we have sharpened each other because iron sharpens iron. We need each other to learn, live the Christian life. This morning, you sang worship songs that you could have done on your own, but you didn't. I mean, you could do Spotify and Pandora in your car or whatever, you know, and sit around and listen to worship music. That's cool. But when you came to church, words were put into your mind and came out of your mouth because somebody else was leading you. We gathered together and did the work of the people and it drew us closer to God. That's why we worship together. That's why we're going to do the Lord's table here in just a moment. The alternative 
is that we water down the Bible. I got this quote for you that I can't leave alone. It's not on your paper. It's up on the screen. Years ago, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Lewis Sperry Chafer, made this statement. He said, The very fact, Chafer says, that I did not study a prescribed course in theology made it possible for me to approach the subject with an unprejudiced mind and to be concerned only with what the Bible actually teaches. Do you hear what assumptions he's making? He thinks that he is some objective fount of truth. Which is really weird since the actual Bible that he's reading came to him from so many people who gave their life so it could be written and distributed. And denying the very tradition that gave him the the tradition that he's rejecting. A very arrogant statement in my opinion. Where's the transformation? Following Jesus is not a solo act, everyone. The church is the interpreting community. You can start a short list of yeah buts and come talk to me about them if you want. I got some too. Because, you know, you could, for instance, say like, yeah, but does that mean we have to adhere to the Catholic Church's interpretation of the Bible? That's a good question. Next. Over half the, bi- over half the small groups at Lakeland are, are Bible studies. Men's breakfast, Garrett Leahy tells me, is they simply read the Bible together and people make comments like, oh, I never heard that out of the Scripture until we were all together. Oh, that totally makes sense now. During various seasons around here, we've done Lexio Divina, a sacred reading of Scripture, and it's always done in community. Some of the best things I ever learned are during prayers with monks or with you guys doing Lexio, community, uh, Lexio Divina in community. When we read the Bible together, iron sharpens iron. This is how the Christian life gets done, not privately. And for too long, we've been hearing that you are a Christian all by yourself. When, if you want to read the Bible privately, then go read 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 and read about the body of Christ where it says, the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. The I cannot say to the ear, I have no need of you. You are a body, and that body is Jesus Christ. You're not just a hand over there flopping around on the ground by yourself. Yeah. 